Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you like this show, check out the Steve Austin Show each Tuesday and Thursday exclusively on Podcast One. Join the Pro Wrestling Hall of Famer and action movie star as he shares tales from his new life, unbelievable past adventures, and covers all the happenings in the pro wrestling world. So don't miss the Steve Austin Show each week on Podcast One. Also remember to rate and review. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. As I mentioned last week, this is the first of what I call the Division Capsule Podcast, and why I call them capsules is that we really take a couple different ideas and put them all together and try to go in-depth on that division, and part of the way that I do that is by having two guests as opposed to the usual one together so we all interact, and continuing what we've done for the Atlantic Division the last couple of years, it is Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post and Jared Weiss of The Athletic. And so we go through the offseason, the big moves, trades, which teams got better, all rookies we're excited to see, all that kind of stuff, and then into the, the season preview. So ranking the teams, how many are going to make the playoffs, breakout players, all of that. And really fun episode, runs an hour 20, so it's a little bit longer than some. I've obviously done like two-hour episodes, so it's not the longest thing we've ever done. And brought to you by a great set of sponsors, MeUndies can go to MeUndies.com slash RealGM. You get 15% off your risk-free first pair, and then there's an additional deal that I talk about during the show. Quip, GetQuip.com slash RealGM. You get that first refill pack for free. Electric toothbrush, I absolutely love it. True Car, great place to buy a new and used car. And also, if you're looking for a place to make online wagers, you can go to betonline.ag. And if you use the promo code podcast1, that is the number one, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, number one, you can get a 50% off sign-up bonus. So betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. As I said, hour and, a, hour and 20, I think it turned out to be really fun podcast with these two and got into some interesting topics. And there might be some people that you're like, wait, you didn't talk about them until the end. And then we talk about them at the end. So I think it's pretty exhaustive. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. No problem at all, Danny. Happy to do it. That two years in a row that we went silent at the beginning there. Talk you guys over. are trying to spite me because I ever, I always reference that people talk at the same time at the beginning and then you guys are like, nope, not, not going to do it. But let's no, get in, let, let, we can get into the, the substance of the Atlantic Division, which I think is actually pretty interesting for this. So the split of offseason, we'll, we'll start and then the season preview. I like to begin these with a basic question, which is who in this five-team division got better and who got worse? So I guess the more interesting to be would be who got more better? Would it be the Raptors or the Celtics? I think with the Raptors, it's such a shock to the system by making that trade that I would probably give them the edge because the Celtics have been planning and there's been expectation for Hayward to come back and for Kyrie to come back. But with the sudden trade for Kawhi, it creates a level of excitement that's unique for Toronto that Boston can't quite match there. So, And I'm probably most interested in seeing how Toronto looks, even more interested than Boston, just because I think we have a pretty pretty good understanding of what we're going to see out of Boston. Yeah, I think when you look at the way the Atlantic played out, you know, I think you can argue that the Nets got better. You know, the Knicks are obviously going to be in a, you know, retooling year. The Sixers kind of stood pat. The Celtics stood pat other than guys getting healthy. So, you know, when you kind of look at it that way, you know, the Nets games are incremental, really. It's just young guys getting better and people getting healthy. I think the fact that Toronto added Kawhi Leonard to the mix 
you know, added Danny Green, who should be, you know, a nice complimentary piece on the wing to the mix. You know, losing DeMar Hurts, I do think there is going to be some potential leadership issues there. And just, you know, in terms of people being visible, you know, losing Dwayne Casey, losing DeMar DeRozan, you know, that's a huge media market. There is going to be, I think, some uh, some issues on that front with Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard as the face of your team, along with a coach and Nick Nurse, who's never been a head coach before um, at the NBA level. But Certainly to Jared's point, I think that the Raptors are one of the teams I'm most interested to watch this season to see what they look like and if Kawhi, you know, even does play at all or what he looks like and all of that. So I both think they're the most interesting and, and have improved the most based on the way the soft season's played out. You know, and Tim makes a good point there that, you know, Casey had such a calming effect on trying to put out whatever small fires could possibly happen, just maintaining a sense of steadiness on a team that you know, Kyle Lowry has had some concerns in the past, and I think that there's been a lot of rumblings that those concerns could rear their head again now without DeMar's partnership and then his leadership at, within the team. So Kawhi has to be active as a leader. He has to be present, which is obviously something that's a big concern right now. And, you know, Nurse is going to need significant buy-in from his two big stars if he's going to be successful. Well, yeah, and I, I think the Raptors, by virtue of the move, especially because of the question marks that we still have with Kawhi's health, I think the most likely outcome here is that they lowered their kind of they lowered their regular season expectation, partially because of that uncertainty. I mean, DeRozan was actually on the floor last year and and really did help them. And Danny Green, you know, is not nearly as good, especially of a regular season player as DeRozan. And then Kawhi is the is the big X factor there. So I think they significantly raised their playoff ceiling, but then they probably lowered their regular season four. And that's a trade I would make. You know, I, if that's the way it's working for a team as, as where that was where the Raptors were and, and where they are now, that's worthwhile. And and the other thing that's, that's interesting in terms of better and worse in this division is how much of it is health-related. Like, Boston, they'll be better for two reasons. Like, they'll be better because hopefully they'll be healthier, and they'll also be better because their guys, by and large, are on the right side of the age curve. So not everybody's going to be better, but there aren't that many guys that are going to be on the downside versus players like Jalen Brown and Tatum and Rozier. That will be on the upside. And so I'm excited to see that and also just how, you know, for players like Kyrie, how they look with another year in the system. So it's it's a different kind of better or worse because if you look at it in terms of like, who was lost and gained for Boston, didn't really do a lot. I mean, Robert Williams is intriguing long-term, but probably won't play much this year. Wanamaker for Shane Larkin. I don't know Wanamaker's game well enough to know how strong that is. So their improvement is more internal, whereas a team like Philly, their improvement, modest as it is, was more external. Yeah, I mean, just as far as Boston's concerned, when they had their second season with Thomas and they had that whole like Isaiah Thomas, Al Horford pick-and-roll thing going with Avery Bradley and Jay Crowder on the wings. That second season is when things really took shape. They had that full offseason to work on it together. And that's when Isaiah's game really exploded and Horford really figured out his role. So I can't really predict whether or not Kyrie is going to have that, especially considering Kyrie is returning from knee surgery and he might not be 100%. His, you know, his bounce, his explosiveness might not be 100% by the time the season starts. But it'll be really interesting to see if that's something that they can replicate again because their offense was elite last, or their defense was elite last year. And with Hayward returning now in, a, in another year for all these guys to be in the system and just for those young guys to improve their games individually, you know, their offense could be creeping up on, you know, borderline elite if everything works out too. So that's when the Celtics, you know, that, that's when they become the serious title challenger. But 
you know, they, they had such good progress last year and the thing that I'm, that I expect to continue, but it might be a little bit more diminishing returns compared to the past is how much do guys like Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier continue to expand their games? You know, what's the growth rate between, you know, the first year and second year and does that diminish over time? But, uh, I mean, right now Jalen Brown is busy traveling the world, world and Terry Rozier is busy taking over Puma. So it'll be interesting to see come training camp how far their games have grown. Yeah. And also it's one thing to have all these guys back, but it's another thing to have them all fit into the right spots and be happy with the minutes they're getting and happy with the shots they're getting. And I think all of that is probably going to be a tougher adjustment than people are giving the Celtics credit for. It's obviously a good problem to have, to have a lot of talent and have to figure out how to use it all. But You know, you mentioned Scary Terry. I don't think he's going to be thrilled if he goes back to being kind of a a 15-minute-a-game guy, you know, playing behind Kyrie Irving, right? This is a guy who had a big coming-out party in the playoffs, got a ton of shots. Now he's talking about being the face of Puma, like you said. I mean, that's a guy who is now he's going to be a free agent in a year. I mean, if he's playing 15 to 18 minutes a game, how happy is he going to be? That could be an issue. Are guys like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum going to be willing to seed shots to a guy like Gordon Hayward when he's back? You know, Marcus Morris, I believe, will be in a contract year. How will he be looking at the potential for his role to diminish some with the addition of a guy like Hayward to the mix again? So, you know, I think, again, the Celtics are in a very good spot. Brad Stevens is one of the best coaches in the league. they got a ton of young talent. But it is going to be a very delicate balancing act to kind of make all those people happy all at once. And it it will be interesting to see how they navigate. Yeah, I don't see the Jalen and Jason starters really having an issue as far as getting their usage and their minutes. It's especially because the team is looking to keep the minutes right around 30 a game in the regular season, maybe even a little bit lower. But you're, you're right. It's Rogier and Morris are the two guys that are concerned because Rogier is on a contract here. He wants to get 20 million plus a year. And it's not, it's something that's reasonably attainable if he had the kind of profile and opportunity that he had late in the season in the playoffs last year where he really emerged. So I think that's the biggest question mark that all of us around the team have been trying to figure out of how that's going to play out. Morris has at least, you know, and, and to Rogier's credit, he has said that Kyrie's the point guard and we'll figure it out, but Kyrie's going to go back to the starting spot. I'll be coming off the bench. I understand stuff like that, but it's obviously a, a question of are they going to keep him after the season? And then if they're, if they really think they can't, do they have to trade him by the deadline? And then Marcus Morris, he even said after, right after the season was over, I think it was literally after the game that he's not sure what the future holds for him in Boston because he just doesn't know what his role is going to be because Hayward's return really, really cuts away from where his role really expanded last year. And he was he was really happy with the amount of minutes and shots he was getting last year, and he was closing a lot of games. But just like Rogier, based on what the lineup is, they're probably not going to be closing out games. They're not going to be taking crunch time shots, making big plays, and that's the stuff that they really want, even more than being a starter. So Morris is someone, I mean, they could trade him if they can trade him into space or into a trade exception just to achieve the goal of getting back below the tax line, which is something that they are very interested in, but I'm not sure if they're willing to give up someone who could be really useful towards them competing for a title this year to make that happen. Well, yeah, and it's just, again, like, you know, you've got Irving, Rogier, Smart, Brown, Tatum, Hayward, Morris, Horford. Those are eight guys who all, you know, obviously some of them, like Horford, isn't necessarily that concerned about shots, but that's still eight guys who all are going to want to have the ball to a certain degree. And 
it's just difficult to keep that many mouths happy, no matter how you know how equitable the situation seems at the surface. So I, that doesn't even factor in situations where you know the Celtics don't like to always play Al Horford at center. You know, if they if they're playing Aaron Baines with Al Horford, you know, in the starting lineup, that that cuts down on some of those spots even more. So it, it is going to be to me really fascinating to see you know, how the, the juggling of all those spots goes. Yeah, and that was something that struck me about last year's Boston team. I mean, it was a success by any definition when you had all the all the young guys step up on both ends of the floor. But I think that it, it was an easier ecosystem in certain ways because of the injuries, because they didn't have to worry about the too many mouths to feed issue nearly as much as we thought they would with Kyrie and Gordon Hayward coming in at the same time. So they kind of kicked that can down the road. Now, I have more faith that Brad Stevens will make that work than almost anybody because he's dealt with a lot of different teams already, but you still have to actually do it. And so I, I'm excited to see their dynamics. Like Most of the time when a team has as little nominal turnover as Boston does, you wouldn't be as interested in them in the first couple weeks of the season because there are so many other teams that look dramatically different. But because this is basically a new Celtics team in terms of figuring out these dynamics, they played together for two minutes last year. I'm going to be very interested in them from the jump. You know, and the funny thing is all these things can kind of be dealt with over the course of the season just because injuries are going to happen, rotations are going to change and all that. But their whole thing is they want to get past game seven of the conference finals, unlike the way they were able to last year. They couldn't do it last year because, frankly, their offense devolved into a lot of isolation play. And in a way, I guess Rogier, Tatum, Brown, and Morris are really satisfied by the fact that they were able to – make some exciting plays, do a lot of ISO or even try to run some pick and roll. But the offense wasn't very efficient. It looked like it was going to sputter out a lot of times there in the playoffs, and they got lucky a few times. And the way that their team is set up, they shouldn't really ever have any downswings in the offensive effectiveness. So for these guys, they basically have to face their choice of, do you want to be able to get the individual shine or do you want to have efficiency maintained throughout the game where you're not getting as many touches, but you're able to get further and further in the playoffs. And, you know, I think for the young guys, guys don't normally care about efficiency. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's like for the young guys, I think like they, they feel like they're early in the league and they want to kind of ride this wave and all that. But for guys like Morris, or I guess Rozier, even though he's a young guy, he's trying to get the money. You know, like especially for Morris, this is kind of his his last chance to really prove himself and get a big, you know, big four year deal. And then otherwise, he's going to have to keep auditioning, keep auditioning over and over again. He's kind of he's trying to get that big deal that he's been working towards for a while now. Something else I want to bring up in terms of the better or worse is with the Sixers. So Philadelphia, you know, they they lost a lot of guys that were contributors to the team at the end of last season with Arisani Ilyasova and Marco Bellinelli among them. The other guys, you know, like Rashawn Holmes, TLC, not as not as big of a picture, though they each had some moments. But so you you look at it at the end of the year and you're like, okay, they lost a couple of rotation guys and they added Wilson Chandler. We'll see what, how much Zaire Smith plays. But what I think is important to remember is that they had some real depth issues at the beginning of the season. And it looks to me like they'll be better equipped to handle that, especially if Marco Fultz can actually play. And we still don't really know where that is right now. Yeah, there's no question about that. You know, the the Fultz story has been an interesting one to follow this, you know, over the past year plus now, you know, as we kind of wait to see what he's going to look like. You know, I understood the Sixers not playing him in summer league. They also really had no interest in including him in any trade talks. Working with Drew Hanlon, who has had a lot of success helping guys improve their shot. So they seem confident he's going to be able to, to fill a role for them. And, and like you alluded to, they're, they're going to need him to because – 
if they're going to take the next step, they're going to need a bit more creativity uh, in their offense, especially off the bounce next to Ben Simmons. And we saw faults last year, even with the issues he had. When he did play at the end of the year, he had you know, the kind of explosion to the basket that was the reason why he was the first pick in the draft. And if he can get that shot back to anywhere near where it was, you know, I saw him play in person in college. The Sixers are going to have a pretty nice find on their hands, no question about it. Yeah, I, I've seen some reports about how Fultz is really, ex, you know, he's really taking off and turning the corner and stuff like that, and how is he's a completely remade player. I think some of those reports might be reaching a little bit. And I think it's going to be important for Sixers fans to be patient with Fultz that he might not come to training camp completely remade, scoring 20 points a game like he was in college. But if he's able to just run pick and roll and be able to pull up out of the pick and roll, I feel like that's that's enough of an improvement that he should be a pretty valuable rotation player. Because we, we've seen, at least in the clips, uh, there's a couple games there and then just so many of the other clips, like, his explosiveness is getting even better on the ball. He's getting bigger. He's going to be a pretty dominant player on ball once he gets comfortable. But he shouldn't be expected to come into the season being able to light it up constantly from wherever. He just needs to be able to function the pick and roll and take some shots when they come to him. Yeah, and it's it's something good for the Sixers that they can kind of scale with Fultz. So if he does really well, they can make a larger role for him clearing out time. There are a series of different rotational switches that they could do. I'm very interested to see him, if he can have any semblance of a jump shot, actually play with Simmons. I like the idea going back, kind of the Cleveland model of two guys who can really create with the ball in their hands. That does get a little dicey for Joel Embiid because he likes having the ball in his hands too, a little bit in a different place. But if that doesn't work, if Fultz can, if all he is is a backup point guard, then they can they can make that work. You know, if they want to stagger kind of like they did late in the season with Ben Simmons, the short period of time that those two guys were available, they can, they can make that happen. And so I, w- I wish they had a little bit of a different, like a more variable point guard rotation just because like another, like a real off ball, kind of like what they wanted from Jared Bayless, but Jared Bayless has just never really become. That would be great. But, you know, teams can't have everything and there's still, there's still a lot of time. And I know Philly, part of the reason they don't have that guy is because they want to maintain their flexibility moving forward, which I completely understand. Well, and, and also, like, you know, I mean, you mentioned them staggering Simmons and Fultz. Part of the reason that they moved up to get Fultz in the first place was that the guy that played at Washington is a perfect complement to Ben Simmons being on the court at the same time as somebody who can catch and shoot on the wing and can also, you know, be a secondary creator and bring the ball up on the on the break and, and do all that kind of stuff. And that's where the shot becomes such an essential thing, because if he can't do that, then he and Simmons are kind of a similar guy, both guys that could be excellent creators for people, but guys that you don't really have to worry about shooting the ball at all. And that that makes, you know, having an offense in today's game where spacing is such a premium, very difficult to have a successful one. So, you know, that that's where, to me, it, it will be really interesting to see, you know, how this all shakes out because, it, you know, you've got two guys there that, you know, that both that both right now can't play together. But if you can get Fultz to a place where he can, you know, get that shot back something close to where it was before he got drafted, all of a sudden, the, the theoretical idea of what Philly could be really changes a lot. And, you know, it, it to me would improve their ceiling quite a bit. You know, what's good is with Chandler coming in and with Covington, if Covington is able to find a shot again after a rough playoff stretch, you know, they can put out some really small lineups with Fultz and Simmons together where they can just try to run and gun as much as possible and still have uh, you know, three other three-point shooters out there to provide some space there because I like the idea of just having Fultz and Simmons out there and trying to play in transition as much as possible because both of those guys are going to be pretty unstoppable on the move. 
Yeah, I'm excited to see that as well. Hopefully we get a, a real chance to do that in Philly. Yeah, if they can, their transition offense will be very exciting to see. Lots more to talk about with Tim and Jared, but I want to take a minute to tell you about underwear and specifically MeUndies. Everyone needs underwear. New is better than old and they have to be comfortable. So you should get some MeUndies. I got two pairs pretty recently. Absolutely love them. Actually got a great pair of socks as well. And they're extremely comfortable. They stay put, don't move around and the convenience of it. So not only are you getting a high quality product, but they come right to your door. They have a lot of personal, a lot of just options, a lot, whatever your personal style is, you can get something that works there. And something I really love about MeUndies and their offer with Real Gym Radio is that they're actually two different offers in one. So the first one is the no risk offer. You, if you're not happy with what you get, They'll refund you the cost and you get to keep the underwear. So you have that. But also, if you go to MeUndies.com slash RealGM, that tells them that you came from us, but it also gets you 15% off your first pair with free shipping and that risk-free offer comes on top of it. So pretty awesome. And on top of all of that, if you order a pair, take a screenshot of your transaction and send it to gift at podcast1.com including Real GM, Real GM Radio, in the subject line to tell them that you came from us, they you'll get another pair for free. So the first 25 people to send a proof of purchase, that's a screenshot of your MeUndies purchase or the receipt to gift at podcast1.com with Real GM in the subject line, you can get another pair in your collection. So you get one risk-free, 15% off, and then a second one for absolutely free. Pretty awesome. You should definitely check it out. MeUndies.com slash RealGM. Next question I like to do is a move. It could be a draft pick. It could be a trade. It could be a signing, really, whatever. That really stood out to you for whatever reason by these teams. Well, I mean, since we talked about the Kawhi move so much, I'll, I'll probably set that aside. You know, I, I think besides that, the one that I thought was was most interesting was uh, the Nets being able to get off of the last year of Timothy Moskov's deal for really not much of a price. You know, it cost them, I think, in total about $3 million in cap room once they executed the buyout with Dwight Howard, maybe slightly more than that. But uh, I, I thought getting out of that year for them was pretty big. You know, you know, I think the Nets have overall done a, a nice job with this rebuild under Sean Marks. There's a couple of moves I, I wasn't a huge fan of. I, I didn't really like taking on Moskov with D'Angelo Russell, though I got why they did it. And in kind of a similar vein, I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the way they executed the Allen Crab trade because I, I think they should have got a pick for saving Portland probably $60 million in that deal. But that being said, getting off of Moskov's deal really does change the calculus on that, that Russell deal quite a bit. And it, it sets them up to potentially have the ability to sign two max guys next summer. And and, you know, whether it's Jimmy Butler and Kyrie Irving, whether it's, you know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, whether it's, you know, another combination of these many guys that are going to be on the market next summer, they are going to have the ability to go out and sell Brooklyn as a free agent destination for the first time, frankly, since they moved to Brooklyn, which is kind of a remarkable situation given it's been it will have been seven years since the team moved across the river the next summer but you know because of the moves they made that first year to try to be competitive right away they never really had the ability to go out in the market and sell that being in the city and being in a, a new arena that team you know the players seem to like you know they they have a brand new facility in brooklyn you know they've, they've done a nice job i think turning around the image of the franchise around the league you know i, I they've done a lot that I think is going to put them in position to really be an interesting player next summer. And, you know, the fact they're able to get that Moskov money off the books, you know, it was it, it was kind of the final piece of that puzzle and sets them up now to, to have the chance to really go out and, and try to make a big sales pitch and, and, and be a factor in free agency in a way that 
I'm not sure anybody really expected them to be next year a couple months ago. It was just beautiful to see all the untradeable contracts continue to get traded across the NBA. It's a real sight to behold. And I think a testament to Marks that he just made so many little moves to assume money and bring in draft picks or to shorten their uh, their payroll horizon by just waving out Dwight Howard. I mean, they stuck to the script pretty much all the way through up until the 2019 offseason where they'll finally have all that cap space to play with. So it, I think it was just it was really great to see the culmination of Marx's like phase one of his hiring there. And now it's really exciting to see how they'll transition to phase two. And then I like them bringing in Jared Dudley just to have the venerable veteran leadership in the locker room as they try to develop a really kind of confusingly crowded backcourt. Well, and along the lines of their backcourt, Getting off of Jeremy Lin's last year for nothing is pretty impressive. I mean, Lin, a player that I like when he's healthy. I mean, he hasn't been healthy for two years, and Atlanta taking on that money. Now, Atlanta's context looks a little bit different after they were able to get off of Schroeder. Like, you know, I, I kind of understand things more from them. But for Brooklyn, to use that cap space then to take on two guys from... Denver and get a first round pick for their trouble. I mean, we don't know when that's going to convey. My instinct is that it will convey in 2019, but we'll see. That It's not a huge move. I don't think that changes the arc of the franchise or anything like that, but you know, you need small things to go right in order for things to get better. And so I think that was an important element. And then another one I wanted to talk about that ended up working out relatively, it seems like relatively well for all sides, is the Marcus Smart signing. And so Marcus Smart signs a, a four-year deal and it's very possible he will just be on the Celtics for this entire contract. But really, I think the challenge for Danny Ainge was, can we sign Marcus Smart to a contract that if we decide to go in a different direction at the trade deadline or next year or whenever else that whenever that comes, that teams would be open to taking on? And I think they kind of pushed to the higher end of that. We'll see exactly where the league is at $109 million salary cap next year. Maybe that contract looks even better. But I think that he did accomplish that goal there, and Marcus Mark got paid. I think that the fact that they signed it this offseason, instead of trying to hope that they can keep him by matching whatever bids are out there next offseason, is a sign that they, I think it's more of a sign that they want him rather than they want to utilize him as a trade ship in the near future. Because frankly, Marcus Morris is, while not nearly as big of a financial building block, he's at least one that they can use in the short term. But it was just really surprising to see that he was able to get such a good deal out of the Celtics, considering he was they were negotiating from a, from a position of strength. The only vulnerability they really had was that they just wouldn't be able to retain him and they wanted to retain him. But his market had pretty much collapsed and his his bet on himself that back in last October when they were trying to negotiate an extension that he could get better once he got to free agency. I mean, the fact that he was able to do what is essentially the same contract, even slightly better, with no team option or non-guarantees on the back end was really remarkable and uh, definitely helped save his agent some face who was taking a lot of flack for the way the whole thing played out. Yeah, at the end of the day, you could say that his agent was taking some flack, but really, I mean, that was just another instance where, you know, we saw a few times this summer, including with Clint Capella, that, you know, in a market that's tight with money, what's already a difficult dance for these restricted free agents that aren't the guys who just get the automatic max deal, you know, it was even tougher. And, you know, I think at some point, you know, the Celtics needed to play ball with smart, 
you know, they did, they did need to have some kind of tradable mid-tier contract, which they, you know, for a variety of reasons, they just don't have on their books right now. So I, I thought the deal made sense for them. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you did see the Celtics did that after Kawhi got traded. And I think, you know, in, in any of the constructs of a Kawhi trade that they were talking about, they were going to have to include Marcus Smart in them in a sign-in trade. So, you know, I, I think there's a reason why it took a while to get done. And uh, I think that the way it did play out made sense for everybody involved when it was all said and done. The last move I wanted to talk about, just because this is the most logical place to do it, was, you know, it's, it's fallen a little bit by the wayside now because of everything that happened in July, but the decision that Philly made on draft night, where they drafted Mikhail Bridges, who had the intense connection to the city and to the team because his mom worked in the, you know, worked in the organization in HR, and he looked like a really nice fit. But then when it's and it sounds like they drafted Bridges with the full intention of keeping him. But then when the Suns came there and said, hey, we'll trade up and you can draft Zyre Smith here and we'll give you Miami's 2021 unprotected first round pick that they made that move. And so it's going to be like kind of this parallel track with these two guys, not nearly to the extreme of Tatum and Fultz because of where those guys were drafted and the stakes for the for the teams. But how that looks, you know, two years, three years from now is going to be very interesting because Bridges and Smith, they play kind of a similar role. It makes sense that the Sixers would have been interested in both of them, but the way it, it transpired kind of joins those two guys moving forward. You know, what's funny about Philadelphia's role in this whole thing is that they ended up with a wing that can shoot and defend at Wilson Chandler anyway at the end of the offseason, which of course they already had Covington. So for them, they basically got to choose their favorite upside guy in this draft while still solving, at least for the short term, what Bridges could have brought to the table for a team that is both developing and competing. That's kind of a win-win situation. So that trade worked out for them even more than poss- than they initially uh, imagined, considering they basically gave up nothing to get Chandler. And I really like Smith's upside. He's an insane athlete. You know, I mean, he's he's too high of a pick to say he could be an ideal six man, but he could be an ideal six man in the future if Fultz is able to stay, uh, is really able to figure it out again. And obviously, JJ Reddick's thirty four. He's not going to be the starting shooting guard forever. So I, I love that pick. I probably would have preferred Smith over Bridges anyway. And the fact that they were able to make everything fall the way that it did, getting that draft pick was pretty much a perfect deal from my perspective. I get it. I mean, the deal looked better when I thought there was a better chance that the 2021 draft was going to be the double draft with the high school players getting brought in with the first year college players at that point. It doesn't seem as likely that's going to happen now. I do think Mikael Bridges would have been a great fit on this team. Uh, Zaire Smith was definitely a higher upside play, and I get why Philly chose to make that deal. You're totally right that their intention was to keep him, and then that kind of happened out of nowhere. I mean, it's it's not the Pacific Division, uh, you know, podcast, but that the side of that deal that was much more interesting to me was the the Phoenix side, in that you know they they do now have this you know kind of glut of combo forwards on their roster, and I, I am I'm very intrigued to see what that team looks like this year. You know, with what seems like Devin Booker playing point guard, and you know a bunch of rangy wings next to him with a really good coach, I think, and Igor Kokoskov, who I think is going to do a good job of kind of finally putting a system in place there. So that team intrigues me, but I I, I think from the Philly side, Zaire Smith is a is a live wire athlete. Um, he is going to be a guy who can come in to defend for them. Um, he's another guy who was shot as an issue. He's just another interesting piece on a team full of interesting pieces that 
I'm really curious to see how they all fit together because I, I think it's going to be a very interesting experiment to watch that that whole thing shake out and see how those different pieces fit together and, and how they're able to utilize those guys. Because I, I would say as of now, it doesn't seem likely that Smith is going to really help them at all this year. Whereas, you know, Bridges, I think, was a guy who's going to step right in and play right away in a team that's, you know, ready to compete. So, you know, if it does take Smith a couple of years to develop into a, a player, like say he has a Kelly Oubre path, right? Which I think is probably the most realistic. You know, some people have said he could really blow up into something, but I think it's more likely he just becomes a solid player. Well, Kelly Oubre really took a couple of years before he was really ready to be an impact guy in the playoffs. And, you know, this is the team that still has time to grow, but is getting closer to that that end of the spectrum. And it, it'll be interesting to see how things go in Philly if, you know, we're sitting here in March or April and we're going into the playoffs and, you know, Zaire Smith has spent most of the year playing for the Delaware 87s or whatever they're called now and hasn't really had the chance to be a guy that's done much of anything for the big club. Yeah, Oubre is a good example because he's one of those guys that, I wonder if he was in a situation where there weren't any, you know, really good players ahead of him and he was kind of thrown in the fire earlier in his career, where would he be on his trajectory path right now and how would we look at him? Because I think he's a tremendous prospect and probably has a little bit more potential to be a, you know, borderline all-star player than I think, than most people think or maybe thought coming into the season. And Smith could be in a kind of similar situation where he goes a little under the radar just because of the team that he's on and, who knows? I mean, we, I still don't know how Ubre is eventually going to emerge. How far is he going to be able to take it? I'm not sure. And I, and with wings, it's, they're so valuable because even if they aren't starting, they can still be, you know, whether they finish games or not, you could still use them. And so Zyre Smith, they can, they can make that work. And that kind of ties in with the next question that I do, which is the best newcomer to their team. And I'm going to exclude two guys. So one is Gordon Hayward because, A, he's not a newcomer, even though he only played in two minutes. And then we would all say Kawhi Leonard. So if you have somebody other than Kawhi Leonard, you can, you can say them. If, if not, then we can move on briefly. I mean, Kev, Kevin Knox is obviously the most exciting one. He's the only uh, – him and Smith, I guess, are the two high draft picks out there. And Knox at least will have a pretty – pretty important role this year and he's just so exciting to watch he's so much fun to watch so that's probably he's the only one i can think of that is really exciting and then there's guys like ed davis who i thought were just solid additions and wilson chandler that was a solid addition but it's very top heavy at least for important additions in the in this division this year yeah i'll change the question a little bit and say I, i'm i'm most excited to see knox and mitchell robinson play for the knicks you know that's a franchise that obviously this year as i said earlier is going to spend this year rebuilding and and kind of playing for the future. And um, you look at, you know, the potential that Knox and Robinson both showed in Vegas. You know, it's a fan base that is really starving for some young talent to excite it, you know, especially with Chris Stapps, Porzingis out for the year or not the year, but probably most of the year with, you know, this torn ACL. Having Having those two guys to watch on a nightly basis will be something for, the fans at MSG to get excited about and David Fisdale's first year on the bench. So, you know, I think from it's, it's not quite the question you asked, but uh, to change it up a little bit. So we're not just saying the same thing. Like you said, I, I, I am very excited to see how both those guys fit and if they can carry over some of what they did in summer league to, you know, what they do next season in the, in the NBA. And actually, in hindsight, I probably should have said Fisdale's the most exciting addition because, you know, he's going to make, I mean, just the personality compared to Hornacek, who was a nice guy, but was not a very exciting personality in the New York media. I think Fisdale's going to be a lot more interesting. Just the quotes coming out of him about how, was it he has a crush on Wingspan, stuff like that. He uh, He's supposed to be going to Latvia to see Chris Ops, and I'm hoping he's going to come back with some ridiculous Chris Ops stories. So, honestly, just the Knicks being exciting, entertaining, and interesting this year is 
probably almost as impactful on make, making this division interesting as the fact that the Raptors and the Celtics are souping up. Something else I want to mention here is Danny Green. I mean, this is a, he's a little bit post-prime. I mean, I think he's taken a step back the last couple of years. And I mean, there is the potential that the groin issue he was dealing with was more severe. We have no idea what the timeline was. That became a bigger thing than I think it was just because we don't know what happened when. But this is one of those rare occasions where a, a Spurs guy, and Kawhi is this to a point, but he's been dealing with all his injury stuff, so it's it's a different conversation with him, of a player who thrived in their ecosystem, who is now playing somewhere different. And there are elements of what San Antonio did that I think Toronto would be wise to try to replicate. But I always get interested with those type of guys. So it's it's not just like a, a role player, like the equivalent of like Ian Clark leaving the Warriors and going to the Pelicans or, or that sort of circumstance. Like this is a player who, while he didn't play a ton in, in the playoffs for them, was has been a part of what San Antonio has done over the last couple of years. And so how does Toronto use him? Does it work? Does being out of San Antonio take away some of his mojo? Like I, I'm very interested in all of that. And also, even though he's not my pick, I just want to mention Mario Hozonio just because it feels like it would hurt my soul if I didn't. But yeah, I am interested to see how he fits with this next team. Yeah, that, I, thought, I didn't mind that move for them as a, a one-year flyer, you know, with a team that is trying to to play it out for 2019. I I didn't mind that at all. And I he did have a strong end of the season in Orlando, and I will be curious in a different environment, you know, as a second draft guy, you know, I do think he's got the potential to show a little bit with the Knicks. I'm curious to see how that goes. I can't believe Orlando kept Super Mario buried all these years in the shores of uh, Hazonia Island, and then when they finally let him free at the end there so he could show it off. I mean, it's. I, I wonder how much money he made just with, like, the last couple months of the season there for how much the, he was able to get the Knicks to pay him. Because I would say he made the difference between a minimum deal and whatever yeah, he got. I was so. going to yeah, say $4 exactly, million. Dollars. Exactly. That's what I was yeah. going to say. Four, $4 million. That's exactly what I bet. Yeah, so I guess probably five million dollars for his years of service. So I mean, yeah, he that was a big that was a big stretch for him. And Uh, I I was a little bit a little. The thing that I didn't love from the Knicks' perspective is that this was an off season where there were more value contracts that were available, and so I I got a little bit of flack from Knicks fans on Twitter for this. But basically, what it was is when you sign a guy to a one year contract and you have no bird rights on them, you don't get a lot of the benefits if it works out because they would have to repay him. He has a significant cap hold and all that kind of stuff. And people are like, oh, well, they didn't want to spend for future years. And I get that. But the the balance that would have been ambitious but would have been worthwhile for them to pursue, maybe they end up in this place, would have been trying to sign a guy, you know, like a multi-year contract can be a reasonable thing. Like you can go even, I don't think Jonathan Simmons worked out as well for Orlando, but there are a series of these guys signing like five and six million dollar contracts where you could get somebody who maybe you can trade them for something. And I get the downside risk there because the Knicks are going to probably try to squeeze every cent out of their cap space. So it's not like a catastrophic failure, just like what Brooklyn did is not this like mind-blowing success that's going to fuel their next good team. But it's just like, it kind of felt like a little bit of a miss opportunity to me even though I am excited to see what Hazonia does there I'd agree with that to a degree but and also you know like you said they are clearly trying to maximize their cast space next summer there are you know big guys on the market whether it's Kyrie or Duran or different guys they're definitely going to target and if nothing else if, if Hazonia does play well for them a maybe they can bring him back on a longer term deal next summer once they get their stuff sorted out and also you know, they will have the ability, you know, potentially to move him in a trade at the deadline as an expiring deal sure. if he's playing well for something else. So they do have some ways to to try to get some value out of it. But but you're right. They did miss an opportunity in one sense that they could have maybe gotten some long-term value out of somebody on the market this summer. And what obviously was a pretty down market around the league. 
The last of the kind of off-season questions, Tim already got at it. I think we're going to all have the same answer here. I have a little bit of a nuance on it of the rookie, not the rookie that we think is going to be best because that's not what this is about, but the rookie that you're most excited to see. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's both the guys in New York. Robert Williams is going to be in Maine all season. Zaire Smith is interesting, but I just don't think he's going to play much. And you know, the Nets guys are interesting, but, you know, I, I, they're they're probably not going to see much time at all either, given kind of the way Brooklyn's roster is lined up. So, you know, Robinson, I think, should play a lot probably behind Ennis Kanter as their backup center. Kevin Knox is probably going to be their primary option from day one as a scorer with with Porzingis out. And I, I am curious to see how, how both those guys do in, in a year where the Knicks are going to be bad and they're going to let those guys kind of – you know, do their thing and, and see how they see how it all goes. I'll just focus on Rob. I mean, Knox is the obvious answer, but just with Robinson, it feels like there's not a ton of guys like him in the league now, which is bizarre because it seemed like there were so many of them coming into the league just a few years ago. But there, there aren't a lot of. He reminds me a lot of uh, Sean Williams when he was coming out of Boston College, someone who I really loved. That I think was with the he was with the Nets and then smoked his way out of the league, from what I remember, and. He was the kind of guy that could just – he would just block a three-point shooter just for the hell of it. I mean it was just the ins- the things he could do on defense. He could just reach into places that blew us away. And now we have a few of those guys coming into the league right now. And Robinson is one of the most thrilling ones who happen to be blocking three-point shots out of the summer league. So he's the kind of guy that's going to have me league pass alerting with New York just so I can try to see him make a few incredible defensive plays a game. And then I don't know if he's actually going to play at all this year, but Musa out in Brooklyn is someone who I really enjoyed scouting this year. He's uh, he's just got like kind of like that like pit bull shoot it whenever you can off the pick and roll kind of or attack the lane really hard Euro game that I really enjoy. And he definitely presents something unique to their team. I agree, probably won't be seeing that many minutes, but he's someone that can really light it up and he's really entertaining to watch. So he's definitely up there for me. Yeah, Musa's with his his film was a lot reminded me a lot of a, a guy who whose dad was the coach but he was also the best player on the team so they let him do a lot more and so you're kind of sitting there like it might not have been necessarily fun to play with but it was fun to watch his film that was certainly true and yeah Mitchell Robinson just the physical potential there is very intriguing I mean it was hilarious what like watching just like random footage of him he it was a throwback to me of and kind of a preview of when whenever the age limit goes out of like oh yeah this is the type of film we had to watch for these guys because he did very little of of that younger guy international basketball due to various reasons and then he didn't play at western kentucky and so i was very excited to see him in summer league physically he looked like he belonged it's probably going to take him a while to just learn the nba game it's hard for any big man who has to do that but basically making the jump from high school to the nba and with knox what i enjoy what i'm going to enjoy about him on the knicks this year is that they're going to have the incentive to let him explore the studio space and so if he wants to do some stuff with the ball in his hands by all means if he wants to catch and shoot by all means if he wants to defend pull guard different positions like there isn't much standing in the way of him so whatever fizdale wants to try out this year the basically the downside risk is is non-existent so you might as well experiment you might as well dance around it especially during the time when porzingis is unavailable yeah totally the thing that's interesting about robinson i mean there's a reason he fell to 36th right i mean this is a guy who like you said had a bizarre last 15 months but you look at the way he played in summer league after not playing since the jordan classic in 2017 which is a span of literally 15 months without playing in a competitive game and you could see why there was so much excitement about him uh in new york for the way he played you look at him 
probably the probably the best case scenario for him is he turns into a DeAndre Jordan type. And if you look at where the Knicks are headed, that's precisely the kind of guy that would make a lot of sense playing this Chris Asporzingis, an athletic guy that can fly around the court, that can potentially switch on to people, you know, and, and guard. I mean, that's a that's a pretty intriguing piece to go with a guy like Knox, to go with a guy like Porzingis. You know, it does get the Knicks a step closer to to being where they potentially want to be in a couple of years once, it, you know, hopefully Porzingis is back healthy and, you know, the rest of their situation starts to sort itself out. Still need to get into the regular season preview part of this podcast, but I want to tell you about Quip. Truth of the matter is that most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, whether that is not for enough time, for getting to change your toothbrush on time. And so there's a lot that can be done in terms of dental health that we could be doing. And some of that is because most brands focus on flashy gimmicks rather than the better brushing. And Quip is amazing. I've been using one for more than a year now. Absolutely love it. It is an electric toothbrush that is a, not only a fraction of the cost, of the, uh, but also a fraction of the size, actually, of a lot of the electric toothbrushes while still packing the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. It is a fantastic toothbrush. And one of the things that I love most about it is the timer. And it gives you these little pulses when you're trying to change sections of your mouth. And so it encourages you not only to kind of get your timing right, but also to make sure you brush for the full allotment of time, which is also exceedingly important. And then the other thing that I really am impressed with is the subscription plan. So what they do is they send you new brush heads on the dentist recommended schedule, which is every three months. And you might go, oh, you know, they're just trying to sell you more brushes. Well, it's $5 for that subscription plan, including free shipping worldwide. So $5 every three months, you get a new brush head. It's awesome. I just put a new one on right before I left for Vegas and it's fantastic. And so what you can do is you check out getquip.com slash real GM. Not only are the refill packs cheap at that $5, but you get one of those packs for free if you go to that URL, getquip.com slash real GM. And the toothbrushes themselves started just 25 bucks, which is fantastic. So if you go to getquip.com slash real GM, you can check it out and then you get your first refill pack for free. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash real GM. Also one give you a message from our friends at TrueCar. These days, news travels lightning fast. It's great if you're a sports fan. Between status updates, breaking news notifications, and Twitter feeds, you can always be up to the minute on every team and every game. It's great for sports, but it can be the opposite when it comes to buying a car, because if you go online, you are bombarded with numbers, invoice, list price, dealer price. It's hard to know how to recognize a good price. Not anymore. Introducing True Price from True Car is the only price you need to know because it is exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories. How do you know if your True Price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for that same car you want, so you know how to recognize a good price. And your certified dealers know this, so they set their True Price competitively so that they can win your business. So, when you're ready to buy a new or a used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. We can transition into the season preview and... For a lot of these, the first question I ask is not particularly interesting, but it is for this one. And so you can use whatever criteria you want, whether it's regular season record, playoff ceiling or whatever, just be clear about what it is. But ranking these teams one to five, at least for the first three, is a little bit of a challenge. Well, uh, I'll try not to be biased, but I feel like the Celtics are still pretty clearly number one for me. But the Raptors closed the gap a lot I would say maybe 50% of the gap they closed by going to Kawhi. When looking at it from playoff ceiling perspective, from regular season perspective, I mean, I don't know if we could really expect that they were going to 
put up 59 wins again, but I don't think Kawhi is necessarily a better fit in the regular season over the long haul than DeMar was, considering how much time they had built around DeMar, and also they have a new coach. So just going based on playoff ceiling, I would have it. Boston, Toronto, Philadelphia, and then, I mean, they're not going to be in the playoffs, but I guess just as far as potential is concerned, probably still have Brooklyn ahead of New York because I'm assuming Porzingis is going to miss at least half of the season. Yeah, the Knicks will definitely be fifth, and the, the Nets will definitely be fourth, and I would say the Sixers will definitely be third. And after that, things get interesting. But I, I, I would say if Kawhi is healthy, I, I, I would disagree. I think their ceiling has gotten significantly higher in the regular season and the playoffs because – with him and Danny Green, they should, you know, what you'd expect would be improvement from OG Ananobi. I mean, they, they should have the ability to be a, a, just a monstrous defensive team with, you know, lineups of Kyle Lowry, OG, Danny Green, Kawhi, and say Serge Ibaka. I mean, that's a pretty, or, or Pascal Siakam. Siakam. That's a, yeah. that's a terrifying defensive lineup that can switch on anybody that can really guard any team in the league. So I, I would say, if, if they're healthy, I think their ceiling is actually the highest of any team in, in the division, even higher than the Celtics, because their defense, I think, will just be – could be insane. But because of the, the obvious questions surrounding Kawhi's health at this point, uh, I would say that it's more likely that Boston finishes with a better record and, and wins the division. Just because I, I think even though they're going to have questions to answer like we talked about earlier, I, I think their their floor is certainly higher just because – you would expect that, you know, we just don't know what version of Kawhi we're going to get. Whereas, you know, even though we're not sure about what Hayward is going to look like, the Celtics have enough other stuff that you can feel pretty confident, you know, what their team overall is going to look like. So I would say that, I mean, that could be the two best defenses in the NBA right there anyway. So between Boston and uh, and Toronto. So the, you know, I've just, I look at the way that the Celtics grew as, as a defense last year about how much Jalen Brown improved just from his first season and how much Tatum improved over the course of the year. I expect them to continue to be an elite defensive team this year, and then their offenses at least should take another major step forward. And I guess the question is, does their defense continue to improve? Because so many of the guys that played a big role in that are going to get even better this year defensively. They're going to have better IQ. They're going to be more consistent. So I assume they're going to continue to be the best or just about the best defense in the league. And I mean, Toronto, the lineup that you're talking about should be incredible defensively. And plus, they can also bring out Lowry, who, of course, is, you know, was their best two-way player and has always been a really good defender throughout his career. So, I mean, they, they can put together a lot of lineups that are scary defensively. But I don't know if it necessarily makes them significantly better on defense or the potential is higher on defense than the Celtics. But, yeah, I mean, they... Toronto has a potential to get right there at the same level as Boston. And I think the question marks are probably pretty similar on both teams as far as Kawhi compared to Hayward. I mean, you know, Hayward's Hayward is pretty far along in his progress, but he still isn't a hundred percent in his progress. While Kawhi, it's a pretty huge question mark, but at least Kawhi isn't you know re- recovering from some sort of massive surgery where it's really a matter of healing and ramping up his work level and stuff like that. Kawhi, it's just kind of this this complete kind of opaque process that we don't really know. He could be right at ninety nine percent right now. We're you know we're not really sure. 
The term I would use for to, to describe this is kind of expected value. So for me, Boston has a higher expected value than Toronto. Toronto has arguably a higher ceiling just because, I mean, Kawhi, I mean, we have to remember how insanely good Kawhi was in 1617. Like he was. And yeah, it, he should have been, he should have been the MVP of the league, in my opinion. It, per minute, per minute yeah. I think he was the MVP, but he just, for me, I had him fourth because he played so many fewer minutes because San Antonio was actually good about that as opposed to some of the other teams that were above them. But sure. yeah, I mean, that player, as great as Boston is, you know, they don't have an MVP. And they have no one any, and they have no one anywhere near his ability defensively. Sure. Like their def- their team defense is very good, and their pieces fit together well. And obviously, they have a great coach. But yeah. I mean, Pete Kawhi Leonard, as you know, it might be the best wing defender ever, or at least is in the conversation. So, and, and that's uh, what's and that's what's different with with Boston is that you can do a lot with a team, but that that individual ceiling is something that we've we've seen the NBA be dominated by that. And yes, teams with cohesion and excellent coaching have won a lot of titles, but. I, I, I'm very interested in, in Kawhi, and, I'll, and I think he makes life easier on Kyle Lowry. So, I mean, I think I feel pretty confident that the Celtics are going to have the best record in this division. And then in the playoffs, it becomes, you know, just what Toronto are we seeing at that juncture? And I actually think there's a meaningful chance, depending on what happens with Kawhi and also with the adjustment with Nick Nurse and everything else that with Toronto and Lowry, I think it's entirely possible that the Sixers have a better regular season record than the Raptors do. I mean, Toronto really did punch over their weight a little bit last year, which was super impressive, But and they got so much from their bench, and they don't need those guys to take nearly as big a step forward in order to have success. But, you know, Philly, if they can be a little bit deeper, the, the adjustments for Simmons and Embiid, you know, getting a, another full season, I think could be really significant, and the other guys on the team understanding how to play with them. So, I feel much more confident in one in five, you know, the Knicks at five because of Porzingis missing so much time than I do in everything else. But I do think that it's, you know, for me, if I'm going to go most likely outcome for the regular season, Boston, Toronto, Philly, Brooklyn, Knicks. The Knicks last year won a few games early when they had a ton of home games. Then they were horrendous. Yeah, and they were. that was even before Porzingis got hurt. Porzingis isn't coming back till at least February. And, and maybe not even March. Well, and they have no incentive to push it hard other than... That, well, that's why. Yeah. I mean, they, A, they have no incentive, and B, if you just look, you know, both Zach Levine and Jabari Parker missed 12 to 13 months, right? So if you just say he's going to miss a year, that's February. If you are conservative, you if you say it's probably after the All-Star break, well, at that point, you're in late February. And so, he's much bigger than those guys, too. Sure. So I, I think the Knicks will want to get him back on the court and see where he's at. Uh, and I'm sure he'll want to be back on the court before, you know, there's any talk about what he's going to get paid in free agency. So I, I think when you look at it from that standpoint, he probably comes back in March and is concerned, you know, he, they, they're conservative with him even when he comes back. And again, Kevin Knox is going to get as many shots as he wants. I mean, you, you said it best before by exploring the studio space. They're going to let him do what he wants and play a lot and shoot a lot. And they're going to play Robinson probably a lot and let him get his reps and, and kind of learn on the fly. And they're going to be really pet. And, you know, the Nets do have uh, some incentive to be bad, but they have enough decent players. Uh, and I, I I just don't really think they're going to be that terrible. And also, if they do want to try to attract free agents next summer, you know, being horrendous probably won't really help them in that regard. 
you know, so if they do start to trend more in the right direction and just get another decent pick instead of a super high pick, you know, I don't know if that's the worst case scenario for them either. I think the Nets are looking at this season as trying to show potential free agents. Look how deep we are, deep we are with these good role players, and we can use this cap space to bring exactly. in some foundational pieces, and we're ready to compete right away. So they should be going for that. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, if you just kind of look overall for them, you know, I think they, they if they are competing for the eighth seed, say, even if they finish 11th or 12th in the East, if they say, look, we have, like you said, we have a bunch of solid players. If we can add a couple stars to this, we could go into the top four in the East like next year. Right. I mean, maybe higher, depending on who they get. I mean, that's the kind of sales pitch they can deliver to guys next summer if they if they can get in the room with them, which I think they will. So, you know, to me, that's why I'd be surprised, even though. You might say long term, like pure asset wise, it might make more sense to be as bad as possible. Uh, I just think, you know, you've got Kenny Atkinson, who I, I think will be in the last year of his contract potentially, too. Going to want to start winning some more games, I think. So I, I just think their incentive structure is set up for them to have more of an incentive to try, whereas the Knicks are clearly not going to really be worried about wins and losses at all. I think that will inform a lot of what they do. Oh, it's good as Brooklyn has acquired so many future firsts that they could potentially package and move up in the first round that they've positioned themselves to be able to go for it this year, at least initially, and see if they uh, if they have what it takes to continue to build upon it. So they've they've done a good job of giving themselves multiple avenues to go down, which frankly, not many teams in their position really find themselves in. The next question I think is is the easiest one that we will do in this entire thing, which is how many teams from this division make the playoffs? And I think the place that I want to start with this is not actually that. It's are the three teams that we talked about at the top of this division, are those the three best teams in the Eastern Conference? Yes. Yeah, yeah I think so too. And I, I think they're three of the best five teams in the league too, if they're healthy. You know, I, I saw my buddy Brian Winhurst said that in a five by five for ESPN today. And I, I've thought that for a while. They could be three of the four best, depending on how if Houston takes a significant drop. And I don't even just mean record wise. I think if you just stack up the rosters, you know, obviously there are a lot of question marks all over the place. You have Joel Embiid's health, you have Mark L. Fultz shooting, you have you know, Ben Simmons' development in Philly. You have, obviously, the Kawhi situation in Toronto, uh, how Nick Nurse develops that team. You have, you know, a lot of questions in Boston between fit of all those guys, Kyrie's health, Gordon Hayward's health. But if those teams are all right or close to it, I think their ceilings are just as high or higher than anybody in the league outside of Golden State. And, you know, that's why I think some of the talk about the conference imbalance is a little overrated. I understand people look at the depth in the West and say, oh, man, look at the West. These teams are so good. It, this is a joke, right? Which I get to a degree because you look at some of the teams that could make the playoffs in the East at the end or at the bottom and you, you kind of shake your head. But that being said, I, I think the top of the East more than stacks up with the West. And again, like we said, if the Knicks can get a guy next year, if the uh, Nets can get a guy or two next year, that has the potential to start to flip back towards, you know, kind of an equilibrium, especially if Toronto manages to keep Kawhi. That has a potential to flip back towards kind of a, a normalized equilibrium a lot quicker than I think a lot of people think. I think generally the imbalance has always just been that there's probably two to three more good teams out in the West that are missing the playoffs. But the top has usually been pretty comparable. It's always usually been two competitors from the East and then two or three from the West, and it tends to ebb and flow over time. But it's I've never felt that there was a need to realign, and we're seeing it. We're definitely seeing it now because – Frankly, at the end of the day, I think what the NBA really cares about from a product perspective is how do the two teams at the top of each conference really stack up? Can they produce a really competitive finals? Can they produce really competitive conference finals going you know deep into the season? And we're definitely going to get that this year. There's no question about it. 
And for, in terms of competitive balance, one of the big factors that involves a lot of these teams, well, at least two of them, is where the high-end free agents choose to go next summer. I mean, if Kawhi Leonard jumps from the east to the west, then that shifts the dynamic back a little bit. If the Clippers do better than the Nets or even the Knicks, then that that shifts it as well. And so, yeah, it'll be very interesting. And, and you know, Kyrie, you know, certainly he can do whatever the heck he wants. He he might stay with he might stay with the Celtics. He might stay within the Atlantic Division. And I still support a lot of that kind of stuff just because I think it's a more equitable result. And it's for me, it's not about the disparity between the conferences at any one time. But I also understand why it's never going to happen because. These in, these incentives that are in place, and basically there are always teams that would be hurt by it, and there are always enough teams that would be hurt by it to move forward. And so, as I, I have said many times, oh, yeah. two thirds of the league has to vote to change the playoffs. That is never going to happen. Right. People can complain about it, like you said. People can complain about it till the cows come home. They can demand that the league make changes. They can demand that Adam Silver do something. The bottom line is. Two-thirds of the teams have to vote against their best interest to make a change in this structure. And there's just, like you said, there's no conceivable way to me that the league could ever get them to do that. Because people are like, oh, they could just pay them off. Like, no, the league is not going to cut the teams in the East a check to balance out the league. And frankly, as I've said many times also, I don't really have a problem with keeping the same structure that's been in place for 70 years when it comes to the playoffs. I think the league would be cheapened to some degree if the the Lakers and Celtics could meet in the first round of the playoffs, for example. I, I think there's something to be said for the history of the league carrying forward and meaning something, right? I, I think, yes, you can make changes to things. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, you know, everything that's in place now shouldn't be in place. Like, for instance, there wasn't a three-point line. Now there is. I, I don't, I'm not saying we should get rid of that or anything, but I do think that having some value, I, I think there is some value in having a historical const, a context of these are the way the playoffs have always been. Here are traditional rivalries that have always cropped up. I, I think that stuff is, is good for the sport long term. And I, I think that any kind of fix along these lines, I think would in the long run do more harm than good overall for the league. And a big part of the theme for the push behind it is the idea that geographic rivalries aren't that important anymore. And maybe there's parts of the country where that's definitely true. But as someone who lives in Boston, there even just earlier today, there was this whole thing on Twitter about Celtics versus Sixers. And it's when those teams become rivals because they're competing again, there is so much history and so much just already tension already built up between those two cities that it produces something really exciting and it produces something really fascinating. So, I think that some a lot of those geographic rivalries are still very valuable. And so having playoff races where that comes into effect and just having the Eastern Conference versus Western Conference playoff brackets where those teams are going to meet each other and you know they're going to meet each other, it creates this tension all year round that I think produces a lot of that intangible magic that basket that that you have around basketball that doing something like this can take away from some of it. I'm just mad Bontemps took away from the aggregation that could have happened with this podcast if he had advocated for the elimination of the three point line. That would have been, <laughs> that would have helped out my numbers. So that's unfortunate. And yeah, I, I, people just people just aggregated my Jerry Colangelo story incorrectly yesterday. So that's you, true. You can, we just we can just have that instead. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so like, exa- I understand why things aren't going to change. Like I, I've, it's not even coming to grips with it. Like it, there is a, a part of it that makes sense, and I think a lot of it also comes in with with where you connect with the league. I mean, you brought up the point about the geographic rivalries on the East Coast and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm somebody who was born and raised on the West Coast, but also was not born and raised in basketball. So for me. 
that stuff doesn't hold the same weight as like the people who grew up with Bulls Knicks and the people who grew up with yep. Bulls Pistons. Like I get all of that. Like that is it's it's where you come into it. It's kind of like the retired players who talk about their time period. It's like you, everybody has puts value into their connection with the league and where it was. And so for a lot of people that those geographic rivalries really do matter and they can connect, especially with the interaction in other sports and not all sports are drawn along East West lines. I mean, you have American national league in baseball, for example, and then football has it, all of its own stuff. But there is something fun about that, and so there maybe there is some sort of resolution that is more narrow that could that could help a little bit. But even that, I think, is unlikely just because the status quo is pretty successful, and it's not catastrophic or anything like that. And the only other change to the status quo that I've heard thrown out there is going back to best of five in the first round, which I actively hate. So I don't I don't support that. Well, there's no way that's going to happen either because of uh, dollar signs. You're not going to take the gay revenue away from the owners, especially when the extra two games means one for each team. Well, yeah, and the and the benefit is like unpredictability, which isn't necessarily the most fun thing moving forward. Like it would make the first round fun, but then that might lead to shorter second rounds, which they also wouldn't like. So you you never know exactly where it's going to go. And then the last question, which is interesting in this division, and I always have trouble with it because it's a lot of it is about popular perception, which is just players that you think could or will break out. And and the way that I like to think about that is just like players that'll reach a different level of success or notoriety in this year. That could be greater opportunity. That could be just they were good and nobody knew it before. But just like players that you think were worth keeping an eye on, I guess is maybe a better way of talking about it. Can I say Norm Powell for like the seventh year in a row? Is that allowed? Well, I, as somebody who almost pick, picked Rodney Hood for most improved player two years in a row, yes, <laughs> it is completely fair to keep picking the same guy over and over again. I think I, I've given up on that one. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll shift it over to OG. I mean, he already is very popular, but you know, last year was supposed to be the the semi redshirt year, and he already looks so good. Now, putting him next to Kawhi Leonard, I'm hoping he's just going to continue to grow his game, learn from Kawhi, become a more well rounded offensive player. But because of the role he's probably going to play on this team this year, and because of how competitive I think they'll be, I think he's going to have a big his his profile is going to grow significantly this year. I'm going to say Terry Rogier and Gordon Hayward both. Terry Rogier, because like I said before, I am very curious to see how he adjusts to his new situation there. And if there are any issues, it would not surprise me if there is some grousing at some point. That's not a criticism of him, but he's a guy who did well with a bigger role. And I could see him being frustrated by a smaller one. And I think there's no way for him to have anywhere close to the same role he did during the playoffs and during the end of the season last year when Kawhi was hurt. And the Gordon Hayward thing just interests me because, you know, his recovery has had a lot of setbacks. You know, the, the, the Celtics doctors at some point, I think you have to look at and kind of wonder um, what the situation is there. I mean, you had Kyrie Irving having multiple surgeries, having talked about getting a pick line straight to his in a vein straight to his heart, which is certainly a problematic situation that I'm, I'm glad he got through just fine. And, you know, Gordon Hayward had, you know, the, there was a first surgery that got screwed up that he had to have another one. And uh, again, we're talking about a guy who is what are we, eight, nine, ten months removed from his injury, and he's still not 100%. You know, how does he look next year? You know, because part of what's being baked in with the Celtics is just that, well, they're going to get Gordon Hayward back, and they're going to get Kyrie Irving back, and they're going to be great. Well, if Gordon Hayward isn't Gordon Hayward anymore, or he's not quite the same player, or he can't really get healthy um, in the way people expect, then that, to me, pretty significantly changes the Celtics' trajectory. Not that they aren't a title contender anymore, but, you know, that's a big time piece that people are expecting them to get back. And, 
you know, I, I think until we really see him back, uh, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical we're going to get the same guy back. So uh, I think both those guys, for different reasons to me, are going to be very interesting to follow over the next eight or ten months. And obviously one guy we didn't mention we should is just what does Markel Fultz look like? Because, you know, that's the other guy who at this point is just a total wild card. Like we talked about before, I'm I'm very curious to see what the – the outcome of his uh, work with Drew Hanlon is, and if he can look anything like the player he was a couple of years ago at Washington. So like, I feel like I have to respond to all those because those are all very interesting storylines. So first off, I think last year I had Rogier on this list uh, for this podcast. I will keep it there. I think he's going to continue to grow, but I definitely think it, there's a good chance it could be somewhere else after the trade deadline next year because I don't know if the Celtics are willing to pay half a billion dollars in tax in the five years from now or so, or wherever it's going to end up going, if they're trying to keep all these guys. And then, of course, he wants he wants to have the chance to emerge as a star, and he might not have that here. When I say here, I mean Boston. And then, as far as Hayward, I think people need to come around to the expectation that he's not going to – he's going to be missing some explosiveness, which actually is a big part of his game. He actually he, – he accelerates – really well, changes direction really well, and he gets up in the air really fast because he has very deceptive athleticism. And if he's a little short on some of that, it's going to limit his effectiveness. But he's been continuing to become a really good deep shooter and a better ball handler. He's been working on that a ton this offseason, so I think he's going to make up for it. But Tim's totally right. There's a good chance he isn't who he was a year ago. And it might take him a little while longer. I mean, a lot of these guys, it takes them a year and a half to two years to really regain all their explosiveness. Remember what happened with Paul George? He, he came back and he looked good, but he wasn't, he wasn't nearly the same guy that he was then eventually a year later when he came all the way around. So, I mean, Hayward, I expect him to be healthy and playing for the start of the season, but I think his, his minutes are probably going to be down closer to 25 a game or even a little bit less as he starts to build up his conditioning and just his ability to take a pounding on his leg every single night. So that's something that people have to have patience with. And then just like with Fultz, Fultz is probably the highest variable person out there where he could be extremely impactful and completely change the ceiling for Philadelphia, or he could be a no-show. And for him, it's like, it's almost all mental. It's all just whether or not he can play with great confidence, whether he can fix the mental block in his shot. That's what's so fascinating about it is that he could look like he's fine, like when he had that triple-double towards the end of the regular season last year, and then didn't, wasn't put into the rotation for the playoffs. So him, I feel like it's going to be like a it's, – it's unfortunate because he's under so much pressure, and you would hope for his sake that he could just – be able to take it easy, but there's going to be an unbelievable amount of scrutiny on him on a nightly basis. And he's going to need monitoring from a narrative perspective on a nightly basis. I like the inclusion of Hayward because he was such a good player two years ago. And sometimes when the absence, just you lose sight of that a little bit, especially because that Utah team was under the radar for a really long time. Then they had that weird series with the Clippers and then they lost to the Warriors in a sweep and then it was over. But he's a a really good basketball player. And I think he's a a wonderful fit with this Celtics team. And they will also let him slide in a little bit. The, The other guys that I want to mention, I will echo all of your choices are a little bit lower down. And I was thinking of two nets, so Jared Allen, I think he kind of has an open path to the starting job there. And I don't know if he's going to deliver. I don't think he's a future superstar or anything like that. But if he can be a capable starting center now or in the future, that's an important part for the Nets because if you don't have to pay a starting center, then it's a lot better. And then the other guy, just because I mentioned him in about 15 offseason previews and then the Nets got him for the minimum for basically two years, Travion <laughs> Graham. If Graham can be a 3 and D wing, like if even if it's a rotation level guy, 
getting that for the minimum is crazy. And so I don't know if he's going to be that guy, but he was really lost in the shuffle in Charlotte last year, partially because that team was just not that engaging. And partially because a three and D low usage guy is not usually does it does it stand out unless they're a big dunker and Travion Graham, you know, he, he does that sometimes, but that's not really his game. So I would like to see kind of a greater appreciation for what he does, because that is still one of the most valuable position things. Incidentally, teams in this division are good testaments to that. Boston being among them, you know, Toronto is going to have a really fun wing rotation this year when those guys are healthy and the Sixers are their own kettle of fish with Sharich and everybody else. And it's also weird to me to not really mention, I mean, Fultz is in this conversation, to not mention any Sixers just because they have so many guys. But if Ben Simmons makes another leap, it's going to be really fun. And there is plenty of reason to believe that that could happen, even though he was phenomenal last year, because a lot of times when a young player does really well, you go, oh, well, they just started out better. But the precedent, and this could also be true with Jason Tatum, is the precedent is young guys who start out really well generally end up improving a lot too. It's just that they maybe are starting at a higher plane than we expected. So I'm very excited to see what Ben Simmons is this year because he was just so good last year. And I think I come from a different perspective than most people on Simmons because I watched him like a decent amount during the regular season, but I didn't really study him too much until the playoffs. And he struggled so much in the series that I covered where the Celtics are just able to expose his inability to shoot to a degree that it left him kind of hapless out there and lost. He would commit shot clock turnovers because he'd be dribbling, not knowing what to do with it. And so for me, I, I see that obviously his upside is basically MVP like, I mean, he could be an unbelievable player, but I think that there is a lot more risk that he doesn't hit his potential than I think most people are are putting it. So I still think that he needs to develop some semblance of a spot-up 15-footer where, kind of like with Giannis, where at the very least if teams are giving him, if they're literally sitting off of him 10 feet begging him to take a shot, he can actually take it and hit it somewhat reliably. And that's where the that's where the wheels start to turn as far as teams stop giving him you know, ridiculous amounts of space. Their offense starts to flow a little bit more in the playoffs. So I definitely think that there's a long way to go for him. Maybe it's not it doesn't seem it's quite as bad as Fultz, but it definitely is closer to Fultz than it is to just a normal bad shooter. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I, I think you know playing in his first playoffs, I think it's a little quick to judge him uh too harshly but any you know but part of that you know that's kind of what happens when guys go through this the first time you know how do they bounce back how do they recover from that kind of an experience and how Simmons looks in that role next year after he's had a chance to go through the crucible of the playoffs once and kind of get a taste of it you know it'll be interesting to see how he responds and and how he does make improvements because obviously the the jump shot is the one thing that's going to separate him from being a, you know, an MVP guy or just a really solid guy for a while. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite curious to see for all, you know, how he develops and, and what his next steps are, because, you know, there is room for him to go grow. And, uh, you know, I, I want to see if he actually takes advantage of it. Yeah. You know, last year we had three rookies that had pretty incredible seasons with Tatum, Mitchell and Simmons, where we kind of set the bar for what we expect out of a rookie to be unreasonably high, where there have been plenty of years where there, there were no rookies that were playing at an all-star level, but yet the guys out of that draft class still turned into all-stars and superstars eventually. <laughs> so definitely not precluding Simmons from that. But my my one major concern with Simmons' shooting is just that 
his jump shot is, looks completely broken and it's not like he's just not a good shooter yet and needs to continue to work on the little things and developing confidence and all that. It's that his shot is complete. It's, it's one of the most discombobulated shooting forms I've ever seen in my life. And he needs to completely overhaul it to actually just become a jump shooter. And that's a much different problem than being someone like Marcus Smart, who has just been a terrible shooter, but has pretty decent form. And there's just so many little mechanical things and rhythm things that he needs to fix and shot selection things as well. You know, Simmons, he needs to have a complete overhaul, which I have heard that he is working on during the off season, but I haven't seen any, haven't seen any footage yet. They've been kind of keeping under wraps. So we'll see what happens when we come to a preseason and, we, and he's out there probably ripping the net on three pointers for all we know. One distinction I want to draw is the idea of a regular season issue versus a playoff issue. I mean, I, I agree that if we're talking about Ben Simmons in the rarefied era of the MVP conversation, that his lack of a jump shot is, is really a problem, but somebody with his court awareness, with his passing ability and his ability to to, to get some separation, even though he can't shoot and like attack it sort of in a way like Giannis does. And also he was much better defensively than I thought. That's still a really good player. And so sometimes DeRozan is another example of this, somebody who I've fixated a little bit on too much on the negative rather than the positive there. And so that will make it harder to evaluate because teams, as a matter of course, do not do much game-to-game adjustment in the regular season. So they'll do a little bit, you know, shade off of Simmons, all those sorts of things, though he can punish that by just driving to the basket. It might just be that we're in this weird holding pattern with Simmons where we maybe we see some little inklings with the jump shot, but we might just be kind of waiting and see, okay, who do they face in April and how does that team approach it? Because playing against Boston, I think it was a very good thing for him long-term, even though it, there were some really grisly moments in that, because that's how smart teams are going to do it. And they're fortunate, I think, long-term that they played a smart team and got knocked out by a smart team, because that forces you to ask the tough questions that it's good for young players to ask. But I don't think game to game in the regular season, that's going to be a big issue because Simmons limitations were not exactly secret before he came into the league. And he's such an important player that it became pretty clear quickly. Yeah. I mean, to me, it wouldn't stun me if he just basically is what he is for 10 or 12 years. And that's kind of what the player he just always is like, you know, I think if that's the floor, that's a pretty nice floor. You know, I mean, I, I think you can live with that. And I also don't think it dooms him to anything either, but you know, like I said, the, the jump shot is the difference between him being a top 20 player and a top three player to me. And if he can even become somewhat of a threat with the jumper, which, you know, I, I don't think there's a reason to think he can't do that. He doesn't have to become Steph Curry. Then his ceiling goes up to being MVP level. So that, that's certainly going to be one of the more interesting things to watch in the league without question, because, you know, there's there's little doubt that if it does work out, the ceiling is is about as high as anybody in the league. We've been going at this for a while, gotten through a lot of different things. Is there anything else in the Atlantic Division that either of you guys feels like we need to talk about or that we should talk about? I think there are plenty of things we can talk about, but nothing that we need to talk about at this point. It's, uh, it, it's. I mean, this this is a three-horse race, and they all have incredible upside, which is what's so exciting about it. That's, you know, from a division preview perspective, that's what's so cool. It's just that all three of these teams could definitely make the finals next year, and they all have pretty big caveats, and... I guess the Sixers probably have the biggest, um, you know, they could, they, they seem to have the lowest floor, the biggest space between the floor and the ceiling out of all of them. And we never, I don't think we even mentioned Joel Embiid's name 
considering he there's a good chance he's the best player in the division uh, this year, depending on how Kawhi looks. But you know, he's also someone that should take another big step forward this year. And you know, he, I think he's probably going to be one of the favorites for the MVP this year. So that it could be incredible where you have two teams on top of the the division. You might have the MVP of the division sitting on the th- third best team. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, thinking about. The idea of him as MVP certainly is interesting. Embiid, you know, he'd have to stay healthy to do that. But, you know, if he does take another step forward from where he was last year, there's there's certainly a chance he can be that kind of a player. I mean, he's got the talent, too. There's no question. So his development is definitely going to be one of the most interesting things to watch. And that could be the difference between Philly being, say, the fifth or sixth best team in the league or the second or third best team in the league. Because if he becomes... If he becomes a top five player instead of a top 10 to 15 player, you know, it is really truly in the MVP conversation. Then, yeah, that's going to he's a, he's the kind of weapon a few teams are built to stop these days. And, and that would take Philly from being a really good team to a great one. Yeah, and the huge question will be, is he going to play 60 games or are they able to play him on back to backs, play him in four out of fives and stuff like that? Does he have to sit out one game every few weeks as opposed to more frequently? And is he going to need any periods where he has to sit out five to seven game stretches because you know, he's he's getting to the level where just games played and minutes played is probably going to be the biggest determining factor in whether or not he qualifies for the conversation, like you're saying. Yeah, it's something I want to add to this conversation is that from January 1st on, and yeah, I don't like arbitrary start points and end points because everything matters, but consider... It's a reasonable one. That's a reasonable one. The Sixers had the second best defense in the league last year. And remember, Embiid missed a bunch of that time when he ran into Markel Fultz's shoulder, or however we want to describe that interaction. And the only team that was better than them was Utah. Utah had had a nasty defense anchored by Rudy Gobert during that time. So, like, you think about what this could be if they can take another step, if, you know, if, if the players they have, and you could even argue that over time they could get better defense personnel. Fultz was atrocious at Washington, but he has the physical tools to be better than atrocious. So, yeah, I mean, if they're even better than the number two defense, or maybe not in terms of numerically, because Utah will be strong in there again, but if they're, you know, giving up 102 points per 100 possessions as opposed to 104, then this becomes an even more nasty team, and I think they have a lot of untapped offensive potential as well depending on how they can make all of these disparate players work. And now I think they're a deeper team, too. That's probably the big part of it is that their depth gets – I mean, they're – just their athletic depth is a lot more interesting now because of the traffic they made. We didn't bring up Shamit, but he's he could be a knockdown shooter, so they could they could try to replace some of Bellinelli's impact there, although probably not in the playoffs. But you know, Philly has a lot. I think they're a lot more complete of a team than they were last year, and you know they seemed so top heavy last year, and that really played a role in the playoffs. It probably takes a lot of the pressure, frankly, off of Embiid just because they have a more complete roster, because they have more people that can get buckets for them, because they can run a more cohesive offensive system. And hopefully that'll allow him to just kind of focus his attention on being an impactful defender consistently throughout the game, maybe not disappearing on post-ups and you know, being more just you know being more locked in the entire game because that was an issue for him in the past and not having to go through these spurts where he has to post up 10 times and then get a little bit frustrated that'll probably help that a little bit and help him mature because there's still a lot of room to grow in that area yeah their their depth and overall talent is going to be interesting to follow and you know more than anything it's just a, a year of experience for them playing together and just growing period you know with Simmons and Embiid getting in the playoffs for the first time 
Robert Covington playing in the playoffs for the first time, Darius Sarge playing in the playoffs for the first time. Just just the experience of that and winning around and being in a tough series that they could have won, you know, lost a few close games. I mean, all that stuff I think is going to help them moving forward. And, you know, adding another guy like Wilson Chandler has been through the wars will help. And I mean, they're, they're just going to be a fun team to watch because the internal growth there should be pretty dramatic. You know, if those guys all could take a step forward, which I think it's probably fair to assume they all will take some kind of step forward. You know, they already did win 50-some games last year. You know, maybe they push into the mid-50s or beyond. And it's going to be very fun to see where they where they take those steps forward because it is a team that, you know, you look at and you could go, you could look at it this time next spring and go, hey, you know, this could be a uh, – this could be a team that really that really has a chance to do some special things. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to end this. I'm really excited to see where the Atlantic Division goes for this upcoming season. And thanks to both of you for taking the time. It's fun doing this every year with you guys. Likewise. Thanks again to Tim and Jared for taking the time to come on. You can read Tim Bontemps at the Washington Post. You can subscribe to his Monday morning post-up mailbag, listen to his podcast, and also follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, T-I-M-B-O-N-T-E-M-P-S. You can read Jared Weiss at The Athletic. You can also follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Really enjoyed these. I'm not going to say that the division podcast will be the next, you know, that there'll be six in sequence, but they will be among the next, you know, batch because I want to get all of those done, obviously, by the start of the regular season. And whenever another guest comes up, if there's somebody I want to talk with, if something happens, obviously, then it goes and doesn't really fit into those kind of boxes, it'll be in there. But I love these episodes. I've been in the process of lining up the guests for them over the last little while. So they will be coming down the pike. I'm really happy about the group of guests that it looks like we're going to have for this year on these topics. And I think Tim and Jared get off to a great start. And I really do enjoy that. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com. I, I can talk. It's late night is the best way to do it. You can reach out on Twitter if you want, but email is a way better way to do it because if you take the time to write it, I take the time to read it and it, it shows up like there isn't the issue like Twitter can be kind of ephemeral, all that weird kind of stuff. But with email, it's there. So if you send it to the right place, as long as it doesn't get caught in any sort of filter and it shouldn't, I, I deliberately have it structured so that that kind of stuff doesn't happen very often, then it, it'll show up there. And if you want to support the show, that is a great thing to do. You can subscribe, download every episode, particularly great for a show like this that doesn't come out on a specific day. So there isn't a way by force of habit to just be checking it out. And you can also leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. It's even greater if even if you don't use Apple Podcasts, if you review both places. That's awesome. I really do appreciate the people who do that. And then the other big thing you can do with this show and any other ones is check out our advertisers. So MeUndies.com slash RealGM, 15% off, free trial offer, great underwear. GetQuip.com slash RealGM for an awesome electric toothbrush. I've been using it for over a year, thrilled with it. And you get a refill pack for free if you go to that. TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. And then if you use the promo code PODCAST1, that's the number one, at BetOnline.ag, you get a 50% sign-up bonus. So you can check that out as well. Real Jam Radio is consistently once a week, every week, so you can expect that content throughout the summer. We don't change really the amount of episodes, though if you support our broadcast, our sponsors enough that I get more sponsors, I am open to bringing it to more days a week, but realistically, I think it'll be once a week for at least the, the foreseeable future. I love doing it, and I love talking with people like Jared and Tim, so thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.
Caregivers, are you and the person you care for not satisfied with your current home care agency? Then you need to call Help at Home as we offer the highest paid wages, weekly pay, overtime pay, benefits, and do not forget paid time off. Help at Home is actively recruiting caregivers who are caring for a loved one. We make changing agencies quick and easy. Call one of our care professionals now at 412-784-6711. That's 412-784-6711 or go to helpathomepa.com. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep the facility running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you Raymond in Buffalo and Maria in Miami, Jules in Minneapolis and Stan in central Indiana. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with experienced branch staff at over 250 locations so you get the product you're looking for. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.